Today's reading is from Luke 2, 8 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the downtown campus of Christ Community. And in case you haven't been with us for a minute, we are on week three of our Advent series. And personally, I've enjoyed it a lot thus far. Um, we're re-engaging the story of Jesus' birth, and we're doing it in a unique way. We are looking at it through the lens of the names of God that show up throughout the Bible and then appear again in the birth narrative of Jesus. So week one, we talked about God Most High, El Elyon. You might remember that. And that name appears in Psalm 97, and then it appears again in the first chapter of Luke as the angel appears to Mary. And then last week, we looked at Hagar, in Genesis 16, Hagar is a runaway slave. God encounters her in the wilderness. And because God recognized her suffering and he saw her need and he looked after her, she gives God a name and she says, you are the God who sees me. So what about this week? Well, this week we are exploring another name for God and I'm going to get to it in a minute, but I want to keep you in suspense for just a few minutes here. First, let me ask you a question. When you open your Bible and you read the story of Jesus' birth, maybe around Christmas time, is there anything that feels far-fetched to you? If you're like me, and you've been around church for some time, the birth story of Jesus is so familiar. And it's so familiar that we often miss or overlook the bizarre and kind of fascinating details that are in it. And there is a particular element in the story of Jesus' birth that is a part of our Christmas imagery. It's really a part of our Christmas decorations just as much as Santa Claus and Rudolph are. And that element is this, the angels. If I had to guess, for most of us, regardless if we would say we are Christian or not, we put Santa and angels in the same box in our minds. Some of us might not say that out loud, of course, but functionally, <laughs> We see Santa and angels as, with about as equal believability. What's interesting about ancient scripture, including the passages in the Gospels that have been handed down to us about Jesus' birth, is that the angels are not presented as symbolic. <laughs> the angels aren't metaphorical. 
The angels are not an add-on to the story of Jesus' birth to make it a bit more spectacular. The angels are presented as real. In the beginning of Luke, he says this. Go with me here. Let me remind you of what Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is doing his best to record an accurate account in the events that surrounded Jesus' birth, and the angels are one of those things. And as people living in the 21st century, it might be difficult for some of us more than others to get behind the fact that Luke presents angels as real. And I'm not here to give an apologetic for the existence of angels this morning as my sermon. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm actually up here operating with the belief that angels are real. And I understand this really challenges our modern Western framework of reality. We live in a modern world that doesn't take kindly to a belief in angels or other supernatural elements. And Charles Taylor, he's a renowned philosopher, he named our moment in time, he called it the disenchanted age. And what he means by that is that our world has grown increasingly secular, and in a predominantly secular world, we are disenchanted. We are disenchanted with the idea of the supernatural. And he says those of us who don't have a grid for the supernatural are living in what he calls the imminent frame. All we see is the here and the now. And as our world grows increasingly secular, Christianity will continue to be pushed to the margins. And if you think of culture just like a tapestry, the Christian threads will be pulled out one by one. And those, one of those threads is seeing the world with a grid for what God does through it and angels being a part of that work. I'm not under the assumption that by the end of this message, you won't still have per perhaps questions and doubts about angels and other supernatural elements, but my hope is this. Even if you struggle to believe that it could be true, my hope is that something pricks your heart this morning where you want that view of reality to be true. And as Char Charles Taylor would say, that your imminent frame develops a crack. <laughs> Here's what I'm driving at. I said we would get to the name of God this morning and I wanted to preempt it because the name for God that we're exploring this morning very much deals with angels. It's this, Jehovah Sabaoth. That's Hebrew, of course. Say that with me, Jehovah Sabaoth. This name means Lord of hosts. To put it in other words, this name could mean Lord of angel armies. The name Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, appears over 280 times in the Bible. And this name reveals a proud truth that Christians believe about God. And this is the truth. You have a God who fights for you. You have a God who fights for you. And in our time this morning, we're going to see that. We have, that because we have a God who fights for us, it frees us to do two things as a result. Let me show you. If you have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah 31. We're going to go ahead and look at the first five verses of that chapter and let me remind you that Isaiah was one of the prophets in Israel's history, and he was a really famous one, actually. And in chapter 31, what's happening is that God's people are actually under attack. 
They're being threatened with a military invasion. And so you can imagine, people are quite, like, literally afraid. <laughs> they're afraid for their lives. And they're looking for anything that would bring them security at all. And here is what Isaiah has to say to them. Again, this is Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 5. It should be up on the screen behind me. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. And he does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. These people are in a life-threatening situation. <laughs> and an army is about to attack them. Many of them are thinking pragmatically, right? They're like, let's go to Egypt. Let's get the heck out. Let's go to Egypt. Let's pull an army together. And in some ways, that makes a lot of sense to me. But as you saw, Isaiah actually rebukes them for those efforts. He continues on. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls, growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. There are two images here that I want to highlight. Isaiah says that our God is like a lion who is growling over his prey. Now, this is not the first image that comes to my mind when I think of God fighting for me, if I'm honest with you, but I think it's so helpful. And as I sat with it, this is why. Because it paints a picture, uh, or the picture it paints is this. God is not bothered in the slightest when something that tries to get in the way of what is rightfully his comes. He is like a lion standing over his prey, growling at those who might come near, knowing full well he is in control of the situation. And you see, when God sees you as rightfully his, then you have a God who stands over you, growling at those who might try to take you from him. God knows he is in control. He's not threatened by anything. And Isaiah doesn't stop there. He purposefully uses the name Lord of Hosts to describe God. And this is his way of essentially saying, you don't just have a God who stands alone over you. No, you have a God who rallies his heavenly resources on your behalf. You have a God who calls on his armies of angels and marshals them and deploys them on your behalf. And as I was preparing, and I was just thinking about the times that angels show up in the Bible, I really was eating a bowl of oatmeal in the morning, just trying to think about this. I was reminded of a particular time in Jesus' life. After Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's arrested. And one of his disciples, Peter, tries to defend Jesus. And knowing Peter, he always just kind of springs into action. Peter tries to defend Jesus, and he cuts off a guy's ear who is trying to arrest Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He said, put your sword back in its place. Do you not think I cannot call on my father and he will put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? 
You see, Jesus understood that there are angels fighting battles for him. And we have a God who fights for us. We have a God who mobilizes his heavenly armies of angels and his resources to battle on our behalf. If I'm totally honest with you, this is hard for me to believe at times. Now, I intellectually assent to it, and what I mean by that is I don't find it difficult to wrap my mind around. I find it difficult to believe it functionally in the way that I live. I struggle to make that move from my head to my heart. But when Isaiah wrote this passage, he wrote it at a time when the lives of God's people were at stake. They were under attack. But Isaiah still didn't mince words. He told them to stop trying to take things into their own hands, to stop trying to find security in other places. There's a lot of things that I place my trust in functionally. I can place it in my job performance. I can place it in my own plan for my life. Maybe you are similar. Wherever you are at this morning and wherever I am at this morning, it is a never a wrong time to remember that we have a God who is standing over us. We have a God who is in control, who is unbothered, who has heavenly armies of angels at his disposal for us. And the second image in this passage is one that I just want to touch on briefly. Isaiah says, God is like a bird hovering over her nest. When we think, when we see, we've all seen a mama bird, right? When guarding her nest. She's attentive to everything that's happening in it and around it. Her wings cover it. It's her territory. Don't go near. Isaiah says, God hovers over us. There are other images that should come to mind when we think of the image of God as a bird. The Holy Spirit is often compared to a bird, isn't he? God's Spirit hovers over the waters. God's Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And here's the deal. God's Spirit lives in us. And we can trust that God's Spirit is doing what he has always done and what he has said God is doing in our passage, which is protecting, delivering, sparing, and rescuing. That's what Isaiah says his spirit is doing. We have a God who fights for us. But what does this mean? What does this mean for us in our daily lives, every day, every week? Well, I think it means this. You can stop striving. You can stop trying to fight your own battles in your own strength. You can stop trying to conjure up enough power from within yourself relying on your very own limited resources. You know, when I just was just first getting into ministry, I was a high school pastor back in Chicago uh, during my years in divinity school. And over the first two years, a common conversation I would have when I met with any of my adult volunteers was it went something like this. And it just struck me. I, I kept like encountering this and was like, what, what is this about? The volunteer would come to me, and if they were honest, the cry of their heart would be something like this. I know, God, you are the one who is supposed to be working for me on my behalf. Like, I know that. I know that cognitively, but God, it feels like I'm the one that's doing it all. I, I feel like I'm doing everything. It feels like something is wrong. And I realized quickly in my time in ministry that there are many Christians who live with a secret burden. And that secret burden is this. We aren't as mature as we think we should be, and that we feel like maybe, maybe we should be further along, and that sometimes we are very tired, and we feel like we are doing it all in our own power. 
The worship artist Jason Upton talks about this heavy burden in his worship song, In the Silence. He says, tired of telling you you have me when I know you really don't. Tired of telling you I'll follow when I know I really won't. Here's the issue with striving that I want to talk about today. Striving often revolves around just doing. So when we're striving, we discover that following Jesus becomes mostly just about doing the right thing. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing in itself, but I think it's very incomplete. And go with me here. What if, what if instead of just forcing yourself to try to do the right thing in your own strength, what if you could become the kind of person who truly and deeply desires to do what is good and holy? And because you deeply desire it, you do that more often than not. That movement there is from doing to becoming. It's from moral formation to spiritual formation. John Coe is a professor at Biola and in their Institute of Spiritual Formation there, and he would say something like this, the way that we form ourselves as Christians is not by setting some standard in our minds and then trying to meet it in our own strength. That's actually the way of moralism. Let me explain that. Aristotle said the way that you form character, character is to put a hero figure in front of someone. You place that in front of someone, you place a great person, an ideal figure in front of them, and then you model the virtues that that person embodies so that you can, in your own strength, transform yourself into that person. That is moralism. That is not the Christian life. As Christians, that is actually what we are saved from. We don't say, this is what Jesus looks like, go be that. Do it in your own strength. No, that would be us trying to attempt to change ourselves in our own power. We as Christians, we actually have the opportunity to be the most transformed people, the most moral people. But to become that, it's going to be a change of character through another person. Not through ourselves, but through Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've been trying to fight your own battles and you're just coming up short over and over and over again. Listen to what Paul writes. He says this in Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Paul is saying that though we start with the Spirit in our Christian lives, we really quickly fall back into moralism just focusing on doing things within our own strength. We think to ourselves, oh, if I could just make myself do this instead of this. The instinct of the moralist is always to jump to what do I need to do. No, as Christians, we are looking to partner with the Spirit of God, the Spirit who is already inside of us. We're looking to partner with the God who is fighting battles on our behalf and who has given us his Spirit to protect us, to deliver us, to rescue us, and give us spiritual resources. So here's what I want you to do this week, very practically. If you go to God in prayer, here's how you know if you have a bit of a moralist in you. And I've done this exercise before, so some of you might remember it. But if you go to God in prayer, and your first response to God when you sit down to prayer is this. God, I need to do better. If that's you, 
then you have a moralist in your head. And that's okay. <laughs> All of us do. <laughs> if that's your first response, then here's what you should do. Sit in it. And I would say repent for the ways that you haven't walked with God's Spirit, where you have disobeyed, for the ways you have come up short. But don't stop at that point. Continue to sit with Him. Try to quiet yourself. Open yourself to His Spirit and listen. Prayer trains us to open ourselves to His Spirit, to open ourselves to being with God, deepening our relationship with Him. And it's in that place of deep relationship that we start the work of transformation that the Spirit begins there. Jason Upton, the worship artist I quoted earlier, he continues in his song and he says this, and this might be a model for prayer for you this week. I'd rather stand here speechless with no great words to say if my silence is more truthful and my ears can hear how to walk in your ways. In my broken will, Christ, teach me. Teach me what your kingdom is all about. Unite my heart to fear you, to fear your holy name, and create a life of worship in the spirit and truth of your loving ways. You have a God who is fighting for you. You can stop striving. His spirit lives in you, protecting and delivering, rescuing and sparing. So will you open yourself to his spirit? So we can stop striving because we have a God who's fighting our battles for us and his spirit has a big part to play in our experience of that, but it doesn't stop there. There's something else that we can do because God is fighting for us. We can start resting. For many of us, the Christmas season can be a particularly restless season. For some folks, their business picks up around the end of the year. If you're a teacher, December is the final push at the end of the semester. If you're in ministry, things just seem to move at a quicker pace throughout the holidays. But apart from our work lives, right, the Christmas season comes with shopping and decorating and caroling and Christmas gatherings and Christmas pop-up bars. I went to one this week. And we have numerous events and gatherings that are fun. And all of this just adds to the pace of life. The Christmas season is one that is filled with so much goodness, but it can also be particularly restless. And if you didn't know it already, Advent, it means arrival or coming. Advent refers to the season dedicated to preparing for the arrival of Jesus into the world. And two weeks ago, we talked about how Advent, if nothing else, it creates space. To live into the season of Advent is to practice putting the busyness of the Christmas season aside for some moments every day. And Advent plays a unique role in a particularly restless time because it helps us slow down and it helps us rest. Advent asks us to take time to pause, to rest our minds, our souls, and our bodies, so that we can fully embrace the God who came to us in the person of Jesus. Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest and writer, and just this last Sunday, she published an op-ed piece in the New York Times. It was titled, I'm not ready for Christmas, I need to take a minute. <laughs> you can go check it out. Uh, in her piece, she talks about how Advent is a time of reflection, and part of practicing reflection is noticing where we need hope in our lives. She offers some practical ways to reflect throughout the Advent season, and let me share with you her first little piece of advice. It's this, to slow down. Here's what she says. 
Advent offers us a yearly call to notice our own lives. Holidays can get very busy. I understand that. But we can carve out even a few minutes each day, minutes each day or week to allow intentional time for stillness. Sit in silence for 15 minutes. Light a candle or go on a walk. Think of times of consolation or joy in the past year. What are ways that you have known provision, love, laughter, or God's nearness? I'll add one more suggestion to her list. What would it look like for you to reflect on the promises of God? Not just in the ways that you have seen God be faithful to you this last year, but also the promises of God in Scripture. Advent says to us, stop and rest in the promises of God again. For example, look with me at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. These two verses, they're so well known because when we read them with Jesus in mind, like we do the rest of the Old Testament, we see that Jesus, he fulfills so much. And the verses should be on the screen behind me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What was promised there? God would send his son. God would send a Messiah. That that child would come and inaugurate the kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace and it would have no end. And Isaiah is saying this. And he's saying this to a people who haven't seen that yet play out at all yet. But he's telling them that they can rest in this promise because the Lord of hosts will ultimately do it. What Isaiah is doing is he's challenging them to rest in what their God will do. And for us, the people of God now, guess what? That looks a bit different. We actually have seen reason to rest in God's promises. Why? We can rest in his promise because he has already done so much of it. He has begun to accomplish this promise in Isaiah 9. The Lord of hosts has indeed inaugurated his kingdom of peace and righteousness. So maybe part of your resting is to rest in the promises of the Lord of hosts and to remind yourself that he is worth trusting. His promises will always come to pass. He never fails to come through on his promises. I can't say it better than Isaiah says in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So as we close out our time, let me remind you that you have a God who fights for you. And because you have a God who fights for you, you can stop striving. You can place your security and your trust in him. You can partner with his Holy Spirit to grow in becoming a person who genu genuinely loves what the Spirit loves. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And because you have a God who fights for you, you can start resting. Let me encourage you to try to slow down and rest in God's promises this Advent season. May we spend the next few weeks reflecting and waiting. And in that way, maybe when, we, when Christmas comes, we will find that we have discovered we have real hope. 
We have real hope in a new way. We recognize our hope. It all hinges on the arrival of God in the form of a baby promised thousands of years ago that Isaiah wrote about. This is the child that Isaiah mentions in chapter 9. That's the Messiah Isaiah prophesied about. After hundreds of years of waiting, after hundreds of years of trying to rest in that promise, the people of God noticed that something happened in a dirty cave in Bethlehem. The long-awaited work of the Lord of hosts was finally being accomplished there. And guess who was there to announce the good news? The heavenly host. Luke records this. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I hope that this Advent season you find renewed rest because the Lord of hosts, he is fighting on your behalf and he is keeping his promises to you and you can rest in that. Would you pray with me, please?